Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today's is a special episode, and I'm thrilled to bring you a thought-provoking talk by Louis Fishman. Louis has presented uh, at Northwestern University, organized by the Buffett Institute for Global Affairs, Kaiman Modern Turkey Studies. The talk Israel, Palestine, and Turkey in the post-October 7 reality, a historical look toward the future. Louis Fishman is a good friend of mine, also a good friend of the podcast, and his insights promise to shed light on the ever-evolving landscape uh, in Palestine, Israel, and indeed Turkey. Whether you're passionate about history, politics, or international affairs, or you just care about what's going on in Palestine and Israel, I'm sure this talk will captivate your intellectual curiosity. There's a bit of a twist in today's presentation. After the talk, I conducted a Q&A session with uh, Professor Fishman and the audience. And although the questions were intriguing, uh, because of a technical hiccup, this rendered the audience questions inaudible. However, fear not. We preserved uh, Fishman, Louis Fishman's answer for you, and you will be able to listen to the questions. And I made sure that you won't miss out any of his invaluable comments. And now, the microphone is for Louis Fishman. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Okay, um, thanks so much for, for having me here today. Uh, I'm doing something that I don't usually do, is talking about something uh, that happened uh, just a month ago. Um, we won't have uh, many pictures, 
but we will, uh, I, on the first page, I, I decided to share three photos from that, uh, first from that terrible day of uh, October 7th, which was nighttime in New York at 12 midnight, uh, where we saw the first people uh, being kidnapped, this young girl that was at the party. The party was an interesting story because uh, I had already heard about it from from other people before it hit the news. People were already writing about there was a, a massacre that took place at a party. And then we have this older woman smiling that many people said, oh, she must have had Alzheimer's or something. She's smiling. Um, no, her daughter confirmed she doesn't. She was just, this is her, her personality. And we see a picture from Kibbutz Berry of a burnt home. Uh, and on the next side, uh, we see the picture of uh, the Jabalia refugee camp uh, bombing that took at least uh, 50 lives, uh, um, as Israel said on TV, to get one Hamas person openly admitted on TV. Uh, this, uh, this also um, uh, terrible uh, event. And now, uh, Ipek, as you said, now over 10,000 people have been killed, 1,400 Israelis were killed in the first uh, thing, and then over 10,000 Palestinians. I might make a, a small note, and then I'll go ahead and start my clock and, and, and keep time so I don't uh, go over. Um, uh, but uh, I wish that the numbers would clarify how many are, are uh, fighters and how many are civilians, both from Hamas and both from the Israel side. It's very, very difficult to understand what we're, we're, we are uh, dealing with. So all these pictures here are going to be remained etched in our eyes, including this one right here of the protest in Turkey. Um, so thanks for having me. And it's Israel, the Palestinians, and Turkey in the post-October 7th reality, a historical look towards the future. Now... I think what, what is clear here is October 7th, the very first thing I said the next morning, the next day, nothing will be the same. Nothing ever. It's over. Everything is starting not from anew. Palestinians are very right to say this didn't start with October 7th. But October 7th is going to loom over the history of, of the conflict. Um, as a date, I think that's equal to 48, perhaps, you could even argue. Definitely, um, yeah, it's, it's huge. So it's a monumental day, not just for Israel-Palestine, though, in the, in the region's history. So in today's talk, I'll be approaching the October 7th day from different perspectives, arguing how it's important to understand the late Ottoman roots, to the ongoing conflict, moving through the Turkish Republic, and reaching today. How can this allow us better to understand the complexities of where we are at today? Now, this talk originally was a um, uh, uh, was originally a talk at um, that I did at Stanford three days before these events, which was called Polarized Democracies. In a second, I'm going to just read a bit of that paper to sort of set you in mind where I was right before this happened and now i'm trying to <clears throat> i'm trying to work out a new narrative of how do we understand um, um october 7th so 
erasure, I call it the, rea the real reality until that day. So this work is an extension of a paper, which I hope to turn into an article, which looks at both Turkey and Israel, compares and contrasts them, and more than anything works to show how they are both what I call post-Ottoman states. Both Israel and Turkey um, today have polarized democracies, with, um, we'll uh, highlight it in a second, with of course Turkey making the turn towards authoritarianism earlier on, and Israel recently, right before October 7th, with the what they call the judicial reforms, or the opposition called the judicial uh, coup. Um, we know, we'll talk towards the end, we'll come back to this again, it, with the, within the rise of authoritarianism, the Israeli and Turkish center and center-left adopt a form of ethnic religious nationalism that excludes large parts of their overall population, which are Kurds and Palestinians. And we know to, in order to conjure up their strong powers, over time, both Erdogan and Netanyahu has had to give, I say, kosher stamps to far-right nationalists and radical organizations. So uh, we see that uh, both the, the Erdogan government during this last election by, by legitimizing the party of Hudapar, if you know, or, or other parties, we know that they are having to, they're losing the, their, their former majority and they're having to cling on to new groups within the society that are far right. And of course, that's with uh, the Ben Gvir, I'm going to read that. So uh, we can talk more of this in the end. And this is the only part I'm going to read from the, the other talk. Uh, and then we'll go back to the PowerPoint. Up until October 7th, for over 40 weeks, every Saturday night, hundreds of thousands of Israelis have flooded the streets of Tel Aviv and major highway junctions throughout the country to protest the judicial reforms proposed by Benjamin Netanyahu's government. Better known as the ju judicial coup, the protesters claimed that the Israeli government, made up of a secular religious ultra-nationalist uh, coalition, is dead set on taking power away from the courts. This would give the government a free hand in administrative and legislative, le legislative matters, um, ultimately ending the country's democratic nature. These protests are an extension of those that began, began during Israel's electoral crisis, which has led the country into a political stalemate in five elections in the last four years. The electoral crisis uh, results from a division um, centered not on whether someone is the right or left of the political spectrum, but rather if someone is pro or anti-Netanyahu. Thus, the Israeli center and left are joined by numerous former Likud party members and former government ministers over their anti-Netanyahu sentiments. On the flip side, a motley crew of secular liberal current Likud members who find themselves with the neo-fascist Idamar Bingvir and the religious Haredim, the, the Hasidic and religious groups, known to some as the Sephardic and Ashkenazi and ultra-Orthodox, all support Netanyahu out of ideology or sheer party interest and unite in their disdain of the Israeli high court. For them, the judicial reform is correcting the injustice masterminded by a political and judicial elite who are hell-bent on blocking the people's will. By giving them, by giving power to the Knesset, they say the people's voice will be heard for, for, for the first time. Then I say, one does not need to have a great imagination to see similarities with the situation in Turkey, which is polar, polarized to the core 
over its president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Last June, Erdogan won his sixth election in a contest that was his most challenging yet. By years of usurping more powers, Erdogan and his close allies have successfully taken control of the state's reins, leaving the parliament and the courts subordinate to the government. As an observer of Turkish politics for over two decades, and as an Israeli citizen who has voted for over three decades, I would argue that Netanyahu and his supporters have adopted the language straight from the Turkish textbook to, um, to polarize Israeli society, much like Erdogan has. Indeed, within the anti-Netanyahu bloc, many have called, come to call him a mini Erdogan. Now, why do I bring this point up now? Because and I, or before I talk about the erasure of the moment, October 7th erased this completely, right? We know that Netanyahu is in his worst standing ever. We know that most likely like other former prime ministers that have led failed wars or huge failures, he is going to also be booted out very quickly and something new is going to emerge. We can talk about that end and we can think about that more at the end, but that is completely um, of the past. Now, I like to look at my, my new work is going to be looking at Israel as a post-Ottoman settler colonial state. And I put that a question mark. Now, Zionists during the post-Young Turk era, that's my book, is on, um, I look at both Palestinians and Jews. But when I look at the Zionist move movement, um, I look at their lives in um, Istanbul. I didn't put this picture of uh, uh, David Ben-Gurion and Moshe Shred in my book because it's less important uh, to me in my book. I put other people, you'll see them in a second, who I put in my book, but such people as David Ben-Gurion and Moshe Shred observed Turkish nationalism up close. They also um, um, saw other ethnic national groups adopt Ottomanism as a sense of national pride within an Ottoman framework, meaning the nationalisms during the late Ottoman era, it was interesting. There was one, on one hand, a civic, national, civic nationalism that's emerging, that's among uh, the different groups adopting this Ottoman identity. But then each group was, once you accept that Ottomanism, civic identity, you're able to now um, accept your own ethnic national identity. And the Jewish groups were no different here. Um, both Zionist, non-Zionist, and others in between were turning towards some type of Jewish nationalism um, at this moment. Um, so I think that this is really important that, you know, when I compare Turkey and Israel, I say it's not by chance that the first Zionists really was, we were in Turkey, they were in um, the Ottoman Empire, in Istanbul, they see what's happening. Now the roots of the Israeli political establishment goes to the late Ottoman era, which I say has been erased by these very people. It's actually these very people that are relatively unknown during this period. When they're in Istanbul at the university, they're not the people we see written in Israeli history today. They were quite small people, and the, the, the history has actually, by the Labour Party in Israel, the Israeli the, the Labour Movement, the Mapai and, and everything for people that know, they actually adopted a narrative which is a settler colonial classical narrative of farming communities in the center of hard work, hard labor. What we're going to see that the, if you look at the Ottoman era, it was actually quite different. Um, and they write out Arab Jews and Turkish-speaking Jews and all other from that narrative of what really was happening in Palestine 
during this peri period. I have to say that very similar to we're going, I don't think I'll say it later, but very similar to Turkish history, right? Of riding out that Ottoman past or taking what they want from it and using it to their own benefit. Now, more importantly, the Zionist movement and the different Jewish Ottoman Jews, whether they're immigrants or not, in Istanbul, um, uh, for the first time saw ethnic cleansing used to conjure up ethnic majorities. So they first see this through the Balkan Wars. They're in the um, Ottoman capital when the Balkan Wars, 1912-1913, and Istanbul's flooded with refugees. And from 1912 onwards, all the way up to 1923, when you have the Greek-Turkish population exchange, they also witnessed the Armenian genocide, and they also witnessed the Turkish uh, Greek-Turkish exchange. Meaning, what we're going to see in a second with the Nakba 1948, right, is something that was already etched in their minds, pretty much, I would say. And we'll come to that in a second. But I look at Carmi Eisenberg here. Carmi Eisenberg was the son of Aron Eisenberg. He died in the Ottoman army fighting. His father was a staunch Zionist. Um, a farmer in Rehovot, uh, and his son who died, um, not fighting in the Ottoman army, he died as a POW after the war ended, but he was, he was held for years as a POW in Russia where his father had come from. When his, uh, when his older brother-in-law asked him, uh, uh, he's a can talks about him and says, you know what? Carmi said, and it's only two or three lines in my book, and a lot of people I don't think notice this, but Carmi says, you know, the Zionist movement, why should we buy land in Syria for a transfer of the population? For Palestinians, the local population will have better land there, and we can fill up the areas of the northern, northern, what be northern Palestine today. So that's already etched in their minds and it's starting. I said these are these are the these are the um, what do you call it? these are these are the what is the little plants when they burst? What is that called? The what's that? The seeds and uh, there's another word netaim. So um, sprouts exactly. They're, they're the sprouts, right? They're the the, the, the sprouts. Um, now, what's important is to understand that a lot of the problems I think that are in the Middle East. We can look at it from two very strong narratives. I'm only exploring this narrative, less the British and fr French colonial mandates. But I'm saying the Turkish Republic proved to be a huge model for the Arab states. And that is one thing, one people, one nation, one language. And then we start the negotiating over, are we going to have an ethnic religious state? Now with Arabs, it's a bit different because ethnic religious includes both Muslims and Christians. In most cases, ethnic religious nationalism only have one religion. So Turkish nationalism as is, you know, Muslim identity, Greek nationalism as Greek Orthodox identity, right? So, so this sent a strong message to the Arab states. First of all, Turkey was able to um, fend off the colonial powers. Um, it proved to be um, a model for them. Um, it, it made a stamp on its ability to break free, but such a model only worked against the Palestinians and worked towards the Jewish community that adopted a strategy of using the colonial power to its advantage. Meaning the Palestinians, when looking at Syria 
looking at Iraq and saying, you know, we have we have revolts taking over, you know, revolt in uh, 1925. We have the 1920 revolt in Iraq, 25 in, in Syria. And then we have the big 1936 revolt in Palestine, meaning they're using that model, but that model is not going to work in this case at all. So I think that we, we really we really have to think that over. And then, of course, the Arab states is just only a small part. We're torn between an ethnic national state modeling the Turkish case, which gained strength over civic Syrian and Iraqi identity at the cost of their Kurdish minorities, as in Turkey. Really, of course, all three countries have pushed out their Kurdish minority, accepted them at times, pushed them out at other times, and so forth and so on. All three states increasingly become hostile to their Jewish population, lending to, lending to mass exoduses to Palestine, inherently confirming the legitimacy of the Jewish state molded in the post-Ottoman state. Meaning what happened with the Greek-Turkish exchange, you're going to actually see that over time, right, the Jewish population in Turkey in 1948, over half of them actually go to Palestine, right? So it was sort of a message that, oh, wait, now we have a home. Now we go there. Now, uh, in uh, Israel and Palestine, Israel receives confirmation from Britain in 1937 that this model is actually going to work. And that's the pill. That's the pill plan, right? The pill plan really talks for the first time that there's going to be a population exchange between Palestinians and Jews in Palestine, right? And this has been uh, studied quite a bit. We don't need to spend more time on it. But there is this already a sense that what happened with the Turkic-Greek exchange is also going to be applied to Palestine. The rise of Nazism confirms the Zionist narrative and the Holocaust seals the deal. Israel now becomes a refuge for Jews, reminding us again of those same Muslims who fled the Balkans, right, to the metropole of Istanbul. Meaning this, once again, this general resituating of populations. The Nakba ethnically cleanses Palestinians from within, and Israel works to integrate the local Arab population. It works to integrate the local Arab population. Later, later we'll highlight the differences between Turkey and Israel. And of course, Turkey recognizes the Jewish state. Now coming to Turkey, because now Turkey is going to um, be... Um, placed in a constant pendulum swinging between Palestine and Israel. From the 1930s and from the post-state 1948, we're going to see that there's this pendulum always swings, sometimes towards Palestine or Palestinians, sometimes toward Israel. Now, uh, geopolitical, in the, in the last, um, up until the 1990s, geopolitical developments leads Turkey to swing from a pro-Palestine to a pro-Israeli stance. But it's safe to say that since the 1960s onwards, Palestine has become a domestic issue in Turkey. And we can, all of these, we can talk about, I, I think now when we're, when we're watching the very pro-Palestinian, um, huge outpouring of support in Turkey, which we see over and over, I argue that it's a, um, a, a, a domestic issue. The rise of the Turkish radical left in the 70s, adopts a pro-Palestinian stance, often training in the PLO camps. As the world endured uh, endured a world revolution in the in the late 60s, early 70s, and um, kidnapping of the Israeli diplomat, 
uh, Ephraim, um, I forgot his name, second, um, also, Elon also shows this. And this is the picture of Denise Gezmis, right? The, the, you know, Sheikh Guevara of Turkey um, with his Palestinian card. Okay, now on the same token, the Turkish left and Islamists unite over Palestine. And this will only come to full force during the Erdogan years. And um, uh, yeah, there's the kidnapping of the Israeli diplomat. Um, but I have to point out that we have a reemergence of a virulent anti-Semitism evident from the late Ottoman era. So I can't, I didn't, I won't talk about this, but in my book I talk about it and I'm, I'm, I'm developing that there was actually a very strong sense of anti-Semitism in Istanbul, but it was based in conspiracies and was based at the CUP, the Community Union of Progress, was ran by Jews. For years, for the ones that know, we thought it was only Abu Ziyad Tafik. Now we see that Ali Kamal also was a, um, you know, Ali Kamal, a, a legendary liberal in the sense who, you know, went against Kamalism or Atatürk or that, 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 that Turkish state, right, who's killed for this, is sort of etched the memory as this liberal. Um, he's very, very anti-Semitic during the Ottoman times and even in the post-Ottoman times, I, I understand. So it re-emerges in the, the, the sense of a conspiracy theory. And you have um, how, you know, um, Atehan, you know, in the 40s writes, a, by the way, my screen is much smaller than yours. So, but he says like, you know, Zionism is the worst enemy of not just humanity, but also Islam, right? So that sort of, in that is, and that continues today, we'll end with that. Now, uh, let me just check my time, I'm doing good. Um, Israel and Turkey in the 1990s, the early 2000s, I'll just talk about this. Uh, there is a shift in the post-Soviet era, the, the post-Gulf War, and even more important, the Oslo Accords. The Oslo Accords gives Turkey the moment to come back in that sphere of Israel and Palestine and actually to recognize openly relations with Israel. And it actually needs Israel this time. It needs them because you have the growing uh, war in Turkey's east, which some see as a, a civil war or some see as, um, you know, the death of almost 40,000 people since then to the day in the, in the Kurdish struggle, right? Um, they increasingly have protests from the United States and Europe, and this is the beginning of Amnesty International, that starts saying, you know, stop selling arms to Turkey. Well, they have a new friend that's going to sell arms, and that's Israel. And Israel, also in the form of the lobby, are, is able to uh, block Armenian genocide recognition. Um, this is Mark Baer's uh, latest book, Sultan, uh, Saviors of Sultan Saviors, I forget the name of the book, but Mark Baer um, has done a great book on this. And we see that um, they become very close allies. At the same time, Israel tourism booms with tourists mistakenly, mistaking hospi hospitality as a sign of long-term re um, uh, relations. And I think that's also, you know, we, we, we have this, I think two or three times these big major mistakes. And one of these major mistakes is leading up to the uh, Erdogan years. Israel misreads the rise of Erdogan completely. They completely misread it. They placed their hopes in the Turkish military following the, the post-modern modern coup in 1997. Okay, 
their ties, they think, are strong, and they believe that there's no end to the hegemonic Turkish military in Turkey. And we know that within five years, that's going to be swept out, that model, and Erdogan is going to come in. So the major miscalculation of Israel, and it took them years to transition their thinking that the army is no longer in power. That goes up till 2006, 2007, 2008. Um, during this time, you also have the 1999 earthquake. These are all events I lived. So um, I, was in, I moved to Turkey at first in uh, 1999, right after the earthquake. So I, I knew that up close. I was at Bilkin, I was in Ankara. And um, yeah, and you met a lot of these staunch secularists during this period that really couldn't foresee that this, it's not just Israel didn't understand that the power was limited. It's the, 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 the staunch secularists, you know, military, I don't want to call them elites, but that didn't understand that it's going to change. Now, the second intifada brings in a major protest in Turkey, and this is Bulit Ejibit, um, who calls the attack on the Jinin camp a genocide. Now, this is very important only for one reason, is that often it's portrayed that Erdogan is the only one that is, you know, fanning the flames of anti-Israelis, anti-Israelism, if you want to say this, or anti-Israeli rhetoric. Um, but we see this is something that, that, that is constant, right? Um, and when Erdogan comes into power, both him and his foreign minister, the original prime minister, Abdullah Gul, uh, maintain steady relations. And the one moment that you see that these two countries are going to come quite close is when Erdogan mediates uh, a near broker deal between Assad and uh, Ehud Omert. Uh, in 2007. Now, this leads us to the Erdogan and Netanyahu, a decade of tensions, and I say a decade of tensions and apologies, mending tides and trade. And of course, I'm sure many people recognize this ship. Yeah, Mavi Mamra, of course. It's all anyone that's the gods of flotilla. This ship is uh, etched in your mind. You've seen it so many times on TV from that terrible day in June 2010 that, that caused uh, almost a break in ties. Eight Turkish activists were killed. And it only the, the case really gets closed in 2015, if I'm right. 2013, Netanyahu apologized uh, for it. But it's something that's ongoing and ongoing uh, in, uh, in, in, in the discussion between the two countries. Now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Erdogan and Netanyahu years. We're going to do two more slides, I think. And then we're going to go back comparing them. And then we're going to look at quickly the, the uh, finish. How am I doing on time? Perfect, perfect. Good. So, uh, the Erdogan and Netanyahu years. I think I did probably a, during these years, probably out of 60, 70 articles I wrote on Turkey, 15 of them have something about Netanyahu cursing Erdogan or Erdogan cursing Netanyahu, right? And Erdogan saying, you're doing this to Palestinians, and then Netanyahu says, you're doing this to Kurds, you know? You call this genocide? Well, what about the Armenian genocide, right? It's sort of a tit-for-tat relations, but there's some interesting moments that are here. First of all, in 2009, Erdogan was on the rise. He was not just seen as a, a major supporter of uh, Palestinians, but he was seen also as a stable liberal Islamist, and he becomes iconic in the Arab world and throughout the Islamic world. So, you know, when he tells Shimon Peres in uh, 2009, the one minute moment, right, it just takes off. You know, look how he challenged Shimon Peres, the president of Israel, on stage. If anyone knows the video, Shimon Peres was quite old then. I don't think he understood even what was happening when it was, when it was, but the tape came out and he really, I think, took off. Now, Due to these re relations, something interesting happens here. Erdogan separates political ties with economic ones, securing a booming trade between the two countries. Okay, so this is a model that's interesting because also when I call it, I think it was the, the Paris syndrome, I forget. But when Paris, when France recognizes the Armenian genocide, I believe, uh, and some of you remember the date better than I do. Uh, Turkey, or that was one of these things. Turkey has a public fight with, with France over this. But the trade boomed. And I noticed that this is for political scientists out there. Um, you can look that often trade booms when there's conflicts. Um, and trade continues with Holland, with this. I, I checked Holland when they had, a, when they had a, um, with Russia even. 
you know, Turkey, and this is this is interesting because what we're going to see is that he transitions politics, he transitioned the ties to and civilians. And it no longer is the realm of elites, political elites, right? Like the 1990s. Now it's trade between different, and that trade continues. And we'll talk about that towards the end. But Erdogan made mistakes also. He misread the rise of Mohammed Morsi. He adopted Mohammed Morsi and said, I have a new friend. I'm going to give him, he's even come to the, the AKP's opening and, in, in, uh, you know, annual uh, conference. Morsi was promised, I think, $2 billion in from Turkey, right? These are the years the economy in Turkey is booming. Um, he only lasted 2013, ousted right around the Gezi Park protest. Um, and the two really were mixed and seen in a similar light. Assad, for example, Erdogan was convinced that Assad was going to be booted out. It didn't happen, right? And this is where Israel turned into a key player, like having ties with Israel led Erdogan back into that sphere. So by 2015, 16, 17, as every year passed, relations got better. And they were finally sealed when that one year they had an opposition government. Now, they needed Israel this moment and they needed to come close to Egypt and to Cyprus. And because of the huge natural gas deals that were taking place and, and Turkey was always being excluded from them. Once again, excluded by Biden's corridor um, that we will we'll mention towards the end. Now, at this time, I just want to say quickly that Erdogan, in terms of Palestinians, I think, you know, when I call it a domestic issue, what I'm trying to get out, actually, is that it really comes back to the Ottoman past. We, because of what, because of the breakup of the Ottoman Empire, the Palestinians were left alone. So we are responsible for them. And yes, Erdogan has strong ties with Hamas, but he's never undermined the, undermined the Palestinian Authority either. So if he does an official meeting with Haniyeh, he calls up Mahmoud Abbas also. You'll see it right after, always right one after the other. So there is this balancing act here also. Now, Erdogan supports the humanitarian investments in Gaza, which I say is something sincere. This is important. A lot of people have read Erdogan's support for Palestinians as only uh, trying to get support in elections. I found throughout the whole period, he does not get support for elections when he supports Palestine more. It's steady. Okay, that, that, really is, that really is not related to him. And the investments were sincere in Gaza. Um, that was ruled by the Hamas. And in the West Bank and Jerusalem, he really maintains the spread of uh, with the ties with the Palestinian Authority is to spread Turkish culture and heritage, to sort of cement that idea of the Ottoman past. Okay? Now, the trick is here, though, he has to have ties with who to do this? With Israel. Meaning, it's been of utmost importance that Turkey never cuts their ties with Israel because cutting ties with Israel will cut him off immediately from the West Bank and, and Gaza. Therefore, he has never been BDS. Rather, he tells his people, go visit Jerusalem. Go to Al-Aqsa. Visit it. Show our presence there. And that way we'll, we'll be able to influence an outcome. 
So um, together with already the mass migration of Syrians and Palestinians and other Arabs, Hamas find home there, and we'll talk about that. And now, uh, just one last slide, and then we go to the post-October 7th, uh, look to the future. So I say here we are, here we are again, Kurds and Palestinians. Turkey and Israel. So I think what we're seeing in both countries as if we want to look at them as post-Ottoman states, we really look, we have to look at Kemalism, we have to look at Zionism. Zionism. And I say there are two ideologies that have changed over time. And during the last few years, in place of moving towards a collective citizenship, the center and center and left, both in Israel and in Turkey, have clung on to these two ideologies leaving little room for change, but rather becoming part of the problem, presented by populist politicians, meaning that by remaining within that scope of Kabbalism, which we see a huge rise in it, right? I mean, you, you think about every election, the songs that people sing, the mass concerts in Turkey of people singing, um, you know, uh, different nationalist Kabbalist songs versus the huge protest in Israel, right? Trying to say we're going back to the original Zionism. We're going back to the roots of Zionism. We see that they're not able to break out of this model because they actually remain within that post-Ottoman state. Now, Turkish constitution, um, all citizens to this day are defined as Turks. And Israel, even, even if the Palestinians Citizens of the state knew they were second to Jews. It was quite obvious. Uh, the Israeli nation state law gave official preference to Jew over Arab. Now, the difference is where Kurds can integrate into the system, Kurds can integrate in the system. And we know that the, the uh, uh, current uh, foreign minister, Hakan Fidan, if I know right, is of Kurdish origin, and we have other people of Kurdish origin. This is nothing new. Mehmet Shimchek also. Right, Kurds can reach the high level of the Turkish government. That's not the problem. The problem is, is when they demand rights based on their Kurdish identity. And then we see that anyone doing that in Turkey, today in the post-2016 era of the coup, the failed coup, uh, we see that, um, uh, that the HDP right, is targeted. Whether it's at the arrest of the politicians, of the mayor, um, her last name, Hudakaya, I think yesterday or two days ago, uh, a, a, uh, uh, a Turkish politician uh, within the HTP uh, also uh, was uh, detained. Um, so, so we see that there are limitations. And in fact, when you, when you look at the Israeli occupation in the West Bank, um, Gaza, it's its own different thing. We can we can talk in a second. We'll see that the arrest with no trial is able to be done in the West Bank, but not inside Israel. It's, it's much more difficult. Well, in Turkey, that happens quite often to the Kurdish opposition, right? For long periods of time. So on the flip side, Palestinian citizens of the state in Israel never can reach the high echelons of the state. Okay, um, and the only thing we've changed, um, we see that uh, Mansour Abbas, the head of the Islamist party, 
during the f former coalition, uh, the the hodgepodge of parties that came together to create a, a opposition government also welcomed Mansour Abbas. It's interesting to see um, someone moving up. Um, but all anyone that knows a lot of this is you can you can go later and read. But uh, the HDP was seeing the you know the mostly Kurdish left parties that came under a rainbow of you know the sort of the Gezi tree that included all the different groups. So the Greens party and the and the and the maybe a, a socialist or communist list in Kurds really created that momentum for HDP to rise to be something else. That never happened in Israel with the with the um, jointness and or Hadash, which is the Communist Party, which is the Jewish Arab Party, but it's never been able to take take off. So so where I was at Stanford a month and five days ago presenting this, where I was a month and five uh, five minutes, <laughs> a month and five days ago, was the democracy in Israel and Turkey looked very, very bleak. That's what my conclusion was. My conclusion was that Israel continues on the road, that in 20 or 30 years, you can see breakout of violence in one area, loss of government control in one area, the center remains strong, and I presented something like Lebanon. Of course, I couldn't predict what happened on October 7th. No one could predict it, right? Of course, I never imagined that it was going to happen so quickly, right? So quickly. Um, and the scenario I had was long term, and it's not going to be long term. The Israel immediately got controlled. It's very interesting that the northern border of Israel is evacuated for the very reason that they're afraid what happened in the south can happen in the north with Hezbollah, right? A mass attack. And um, so they just, everyone's evacuated. Okay, 60,000 people about are, are evacuated from the north for this very reason. Okay, so I, 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 I presented something, a very bleak picture for both of them. And as post-Ottoman states, the question I have here, and I'll do the points, and I didn't write this down here, is was Israel ever sustainable in long term? And that's the question of October 7th presents us right now. What will come? How will it come? What will it look like after? And is the Turkish state also sustainable over long time? We see that conflicts do not go away, right? And of course, after 2015, when Erdogan lost the one election he lost, right? And then the war was restarted with the Kurdish people with a very brutal, brutal attack on Kurdish cities, okay? That looks somewhat similar to what we're seeing today, whole cities demolished. Okay, in 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 Turkey Southeast, uh, is that sustainable? So both countries now don't seem like they're on the path of changing. I would say. Now, um, what do we see? I did two two pictures here. Um, my Maisa um, Abdul El Hadi, I believe her name is the the Israeli actress, Palestinian citizen, who was arrested for for her Instagram post the morning of the of the attack. A lot of Palestinians, I think, in Israel in the, uh, showed great excitement when the, when the, the fence came down. Um, and I think that's almost natural. And they did not know at this moment 
what was happening. No one knew what was happening. And I noticed that Israel is starting to do very much Turkish things. It happened in two or three years ago. That's enough that someone makes one call to the police department and says, hey, go check their Instagram site out. Right? That happens in Turkey for like five, six years now. And arrests follow. And if they're Kurdish, they might be, in some moments, pictured with a, with a Turkish flag in the background. So here they put a Palestinian citizen woman. I didn't want to share it. It's a humiliating photo. I didn't want to share it. I think it's completely humiliating to put her up like that to a flag, especially in, uh, in the aftermath of attacks. It's, 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 it's ultra-nationalism, disgusting, and it shows her that who's in charge of the police, which has been good. But whatever the case is, it's, it's for the moment. The second photo, Jews not allowed. This is just one store. One store in Istanbul, Yudira Giromez. I thought it was in real first. I shared on my Twitter. I made the mistake of saying I've experienced anti-Semitism before, but not everyone's anti-Semitic. And then, of course, I got about 80 uh, anti very, very anti-Semitic comments on me, on my, in my thing, extremely. It was orchestrated. There's no doubt about it. Okay? Um, so, it, you know, maybe I should have been not as nice the next time. But whatever the case is. There are in, uh, groups in Turkey that are fighting anti-Semitism among Turkish Muslim communities, very much so. Okay, now, um, so what do I see? I'm going to finish now. Israel war on terror turning towards forming into a post-2016 coup in Turkey. We could see that coming up. Um, clamped on freedoms for both Jews and Palestinians, citizens of the state. We could see that, absolutely, in this very um, turbulent times. Um, it's already started. I mean, there's there's numerous ca there's ca there's cases we can we can uh, think about and look at uh, universities about the, the forbidding of Palestinian flags. Recognition that the occupation is unsustainable. Yeah, I'll just end and say the the Hamas massacre will lead to the, the you know the, the the idea that the Hamas massacre. The only thing is that it might lead to their demise of Hamas, but it put Palestine back on the map. That's for sure. Um, and that's that's a hard reality, I think. That's a very hard reality. Reckon it, um, Turkey's rule will be limited in the future. It seems that it misread the weight of October 7th, I think. It missed an opportunity to influence an outcome. Despite this, it maintains its middle road. Uh, Erdogan said, you know, we're not cutting our ties with Israel. We're erasing Netanyahu. For us, Netanyahu doesn't exist, but we're not. So we're back there again. And whose war was this? I'm, I'm from the very first day saying that Saudi Arabia-Israel deal was going to happen right before that. The U.S. is really pushing hard for this corridor from India, Saudi Arabia, through Israel. Um, and I think that's what we're seeing here also. It's, it's something very much regional, uh, and it has a lot less to do with being friends with Israel, just letting our friends in the U.S. saying, U.S. people, I'm saying they, the U.S. saying, oh, let our friends you know, defeat Hamas. No, they want something out of this also. There's no doubt. Um, and uh, Turkey is not going to be a part of this. Um, yeah, so uh, we're, uh, Erdogan's voice also has been balanced out by pro-Palestinian voices everywhere. He's no longer the one-man show in this. You're, you're hearing voices. People are much more hearing what's happening in the U.S. and Europe now. Turkey is secondary, third now, not so many people. And uh, will this turn into regional war? We don't know. I, I expect that this we'll see by the spring. I think this could be four or five, six months. I, I don't know. I mean, October 7th, I think, if it did anything, it's going to create this idea of, yes, 
you know, that Jews are going to have to have a state to protect themselves, right? That's where that narrative is going to be embedded. And I think it's it's easy to understand, but it's out of our control. It's out of anyone's control what's going to happen, right? Um, and I think that's why this, this moment, I said that this was the worst day of my life, one of the worst days of my life. It even uh, if, you know, politics sometimes, but I would think Robin, when he was assassinated, it was a terrible day in my life, for example. You have other terrible days of your lives. Everyone has it when politics affects you personally. People uh, people are subject to war. That's much more than, than you know, than I'm feeling also, right? Um, but we don't know what's going to come out of this. And I think that's the scary part about it, right? We really don't know what's coming, what, what's going to come out of this. You know, had this it had something break out in the north at the same time. We don't know, right? We don't know. So I think that's what we're going to have to wait about the 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 fear of genocide or some claiming that it is genocide. First of all, I've, I've told people that um, um, regardless of what I think, I'm not arguing with people right now. People are being killed right now. I'm not going to I'm not going to sit there and say, well, legally this is not genocide, but this is this because you have a mass mass number of people being killed. Uh, and I'm not going to look at that. But there's no doubt that uh, so many of the far-right government of, of Netanyahu are speaking genocidal language, right? Um, so you put one and one together, and this is what you get, right? We know that war crimes definitely admitted on CNN. Wolf Blitzer was shocked. Like, you just you just said what you just said, right? So we know we know that what's going to happen and how that's going to play out because. Once again, if this is genocide, we talked about this before, then well, what, what, well, with, with Kurds, is it genocide or is it not genocide or is it with this genocide? And of course, the ones launching the claim, if it's Turkey saying, oh, this is genocide, right? But still denying the recognition of Armenian genocide, then it makes no sense whatsoever, right? It, it, nothing, then everything is just, um, what do you call it? Um, uh, it, it? It's just words. So we'll have to see. So I'll, first I'll answer this. We have to remember that Egypt has is, is always traditionally been the broker for Gaza. Um, you know, Erdogan, you know, Erdogan is sincere because, and usually my works, I don't use Erdogan, I use Turkish government. And I've been using Erdogan a lot because everything I said today, I really believe that's close to his heart, right? What happens with his relations with, it's not his, it's not his advisors telling him what to do with it, not to know, it's him doing it. Most most cases in Turkey, it's, you, you, there's not a direct correlation between this and this. So certainly the number of Palestinian students in Turkey today studying medicine, um, able to have a normal life, they can't go anywhere except Turkey. Turkey takes them in traditionally from even the 1990s, I know. Um, at Otu, there were a lot of Palestinian students and they're able to become engineers, they're able to become doctors, and they're able to get citizenship or at least long-term residency, buy homes, different things like that. So I think there's that influence. There, there's that, um, but most definitely, I don't think they, I don't think Palestinians really trust anyone. I mean, if you, if you, if you, if you look at that, because, you know, they've been sold out many times, either by Egypt or by Saudi Arabia or by UAE. Um, but on the flip side, these countries would probably say the same thing about the Palestinians, right? These, they would say, oh, we helped them and then look what they did. We helped them and then, then they raised their hand and they did something different. I think, by the way, I think that Turkey is, has kept a very uh, modest thing. We didn't mention it. They said they're going, to, they're going to expel Hamas members from Turkey. I imagine that's going to be a must. They're not going to be able to continue as they were in Turkey. That's for sure. 
that's um so they're they're they, they lost a lot of that and i think erdogan and the other countries were extremely upset with hamas for doing what they did it completely threw them off guard no one knew no one knew hezbollah even no one knew about this right so i think that's that now about strategy is a great question about strategy because you're right i said there was there was i was i was you know anyone watching it i was angry i was tired i was they're just killing recklessly killing and then you 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 uh, interjected and a few other people said wait a minute wait a minute uh, bring down so of course we're all a bit schizophrenic um at these moments and we all uh, we have you have one side that's your heart one side that's analysis one side that and i was absolutely right there is there there i said it was a strategy now looking back i would say it's a failed strategy for hamas terrible failed strategy for hamas they're seeing it now terrible for the palestinian people they're seeing it now okay but you can't blame you can't blame them for this either you know you know there's there's someone dropping bombs also you know you, you can't say this so that that's the first thing so failed it's a failed strategy but in the long term it put palestine on the map again there's no doubt about it we're all talking about palestine you have hundreds of thousands of people marching in the united states about palestine London, Paris. Yes, there's anti-Semitism in that. I don't want to say that there's no. Yes, they. Some of them are praising October seventh, but the far majority of people are just normal people. Say no, what we see is not right. We want something different, right? So, in that sense, they put them on the map. So, I don't think that was their strategy, perhaps, but but it it it. Uh, that's what the outcome is. Yeah, the outcome is different. Conspiracy theories. Actually, I, I did um, less on the press because I've been so on the the Israeli uh, media, you know, um, overly obsessed with it uh, recently. Uh, watching uh, events censoring out, you know, of course, like when you watch Turkish, you have to self censor. You have to censor things out of the censorization. You have to say, okay, they say this, this, and this. That means this, this, and this, or things like that, right? Because nothing is. And I think the Israeli media is so pro war right now, so pro war right now. And you, you, it's really hard to watch it. What worries me is the conspiracy theories, less so in Turkey, I think. I think right, I made a few comments and someone said, you know, right after October 7th, one football team or one person, they stood in identity with Israel, the victims. There were voices coming out at October 7th or maybe it's a tennis team or something. There were voices coming out showing sympathy towards Israel in the first day or two, second day, third day. Um, so I actually think that most Turkish people, even the ones that have argued with me and, and, and you know, I tried to reply and then, then, then I find out they're a troll. I said, why was I, why was I not just block right away? Why, why? You know, the worst thing is when you reply and they already deleted the tweet and then you, you go up to tweet it and it says deleted and it just goes, you did nothing for that. You know, like, are they going to repost it? But uh, what worries me about the conspiracy theories is that it's even among students in the U.S., some activists, pro-Palestine activists, saying that this did not happen, saying that this was crossfire between IDF and Hamas, saying that Hamas didn't kill anyone. And I, I just retweeted someone, he, he did a funny thing. He said, all oh, those Hamas people must be, I, I'm censoring his language, the Hamas people must be very depressed that they put the GoPro cameras on them to film everything, and everyone's now everyone's denying it, right? You know, they're denying what the Hamas people did themselves. They had GoPro on there. Some of them had GoPro on their on their on the helmets. You have pictures. I've seen pictures. Also, I know people that were there also. So, 
But now there's this denial that it even happened. And that really reminds me to the sixth sense of what we talk about Holocaust denial. And, 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 you know, the sad point is that Jew, people love Jews as victims sometimes, or sometimes they don't even, once they get strong, they don't want to show them as, you know, if there were only victims, then maybe, right? Um, but, 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 and I know where I'm going with this, I'm, I'm speaking out loud, but, but, you know, denial in itself, is Denying crimes that were committed against Jewish people is anti-Semitism often, and it's not just the normal denialism of other crimes, right? It's specifically targeted to to Jewish people, right? At times, and I think that's I think that's what we we might see some of this continuation, right? Um, I might end by saying that you know I was surprised at the the way so many people in Turkey also and outside of Turkey tried to normalize. When Lifshitz, when the woman, she was released from prison and she did sort of a high five, Evala, whatever you want to say, to the Hamas guy, Salam Shalom, she said, uh, she was an activist. Most people that were on the southern border were activists. They know that there's good Palestinians, bad Palestinians, just like there's good Jews and bad Jews, right? They know each other. They, she was a woman that took Palestinians every Friday to get health care. She would pick them up. She would drive them to the hospital. They would get their cancer treatment. She would bring them back home, her and her husband. So she can differentiate in this. But that no, mean, no way means that she had a good time when she was there. And numerous Turkish people, numerous people in the international sphere said, oh, look it, they're being treated well. Oh, look, she's smiling. It's, and I said, these people had people massacred in front of their eyes. They, they're, they're held underground. They're, what do you, I don't care if they get the best food and everything. This is not a. This is not some kind of summer camp here, right? They're they're under duress. That was the argument. They're under duress, and people adamantly argued with me. Numerous people. No, no. Look at them. She's happy. She's smiling when she up. She said they treated me well. I said, yeah. There she said she treated me well. There they said you beat her. No, but that was when they were arresting her. They said, when they were arresting her, they beat her, of course, because she would get away. But after they have her, and they're they're trying to rationalize this crime of of kidnapping. It's a, also a war crime, right? Of kidnapping children and innocent people. So that to me was so mind boggling that uh, after about 20 people, I stopped. I blocked a lot of people after that, I think. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this special episode of Jerusalem Unplugged with Louis Fishman discussing Israel, Palestine, and Turkey in the aftermath of October 7th. Thank you. Stay tuned for more episodes dedicated to the current events. Palestine, Gaza, and Israel. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks, and I'll see you next time.